Okay. Instead of reading me bedtime stories when I was a kid, my mother used to read the scripts from The Goon Show. It was a, a favourite comedy show on the radio. It was Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, um, the other guy who was the best, Peter Sellers, uh, Michael Benteen. They, you know, early Monty Python wouldn't exist without The Goons. So on and so forth. Anyway, she'd read the scripts to me um, and do the voices because it was all about silly voices. And uh, she gave me the script because I really liked them. And... We were looking for a name. We got our first gig and we, we hadn't even thought about names. We got the first gig coming up. We thought, well, all that's important is that it's something that no one else would think of. It's just got to be original. And um, I got this script book out and one of the episodes in, in this script was Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And we thought, well, you know, it ain't going to work because it's only the first gig, whatever. We yeah. get rid of it. In all seriousness... No, we were never going to be taken properly yeah. serious, were we? Long term with a mm. name like that. Right. And it would become, I suppose it would become a problem. teen in the early 90s my group of friends were into comedy and music mostly of the wonder stuff and vic reeves variety and you'd really see any of them without a copy of the enemy sticking out of their school blazer pocket but at this point in my life i wasn't as into music as i later became but i was obsessed with comedy and it was because of this or maybe despite it that as far as i was concerned the stonk by hail and pace was just as valid musically as say kinky afro by the happy mondays i know right i kept my interest in the goon show to myself i figured that explaining why i loved a radio comedy show which was then celebrating its 40th anniversary might fail to register with a group of 17 year olds preoccupied with doing graham lister and judge nutmeg impressions or trading trevor and simon catchphrases remember them they didn't do duvets um, so when one day one of my mates mentioned he'd bought the latest Ned's Atomic Dustbin single, I almost choked on a Viscount. Uh, the Minty Biscuit. I realised this band had lifted their name directly from an episode of The Goon Show, and I blurted this out to my friend who stared blankly at me and probably said something like, yeah, anyway. And that was the end of the matter. Fast forward 32 years, and I am now the proud father of a podcast and the day has finally come to talk about Ned's Atomic Dustbin. The Goon Show episode, I mean, not, not, not the band. Although I do want to talk about them a bit. So I decided to invite back to the show somebody suitably qualified to talk about both. Ex-NME scribe, comedy writer, screenwriter, novelist, David Quantic. Welcome to Goonpod. I mean, last time you were on, you talked in general about, you know, the goons and Spike and whatnot. And, um... Me asking if you'd like to return to talk about an actual or around an actual goon show. Um, it's not a, a very well known one, and I, I wasn't sure. I mean, had you heard this show before or read the um, script? Or you know, I can't remember. I was aware of it um, at the time because I belonged to the Goon Show Preservation Society, 
And somebody, one of the subscribers, used to make covers, imaginary covers for albums. And I remember there was an Ed's Atomic Dustbin one. Um, but yeah, so I was aware of it. And yeah, when the band started, obviously I became more aware of it. But I can't remember if I've heard it before. I mean, having heard it now, perhaps for the first time, would you rather be talking about the actual band, Ned's yeah, Atomic yeah. Dustbin? Because it's quite a fast-paced, frenetic show, this episode, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's an unusual episode, but at the same time, it's kind of bog standard, is my easy way of describing it. But yes, it's it's a classic goon show plot involving dodgy dealings, a little bit of political satire, a tail torn from the headlines. A lot of the structure is just, you know, Milligan, like, oh, we need to get this character in, we'll get this character in. Um it is notable, though, for the extremely long time it takes to get started because it starts off with this massively irrelevant but quite funny thing about censorship and there's a committee reporting on whether Wallace Greenslade can wear some holly. And then that ends and then you get a bit of music and it still hasn't started. It's something like 10 minutes in before the story starts. I call that the, the what do you call it, the, the Goon Show Law, where the, the first act bears no relation to the story. And that, right. that's happened in the third series quite a bit, and uh, which we don't hear anymore because there's barely any of them that survive. Um, but by this point in The Goon Show, there, there were a handful of shows where they'd done that before where there's just... Spike's obviously got two-thirds of a story or two-thirds of a plot, and he just decides to tack on something at the beginning just to make up the time. Um, yeah, but, that's um, interesting. But I wanted to ask you, before we get on to that, um, last year... I was very taken by the documentary about um, Spike Milligan's archive. Oh, yeah. And obviously you you participated in that. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly his base for a very long time. And it was kind of a bit alarming. I mean, I opened the folder and it was just family photos and it was just personal stuff. And it's like, I shouldn't really be looking. So I put it back. <laughs> you know, it was he was surprisingly for a man who would strike you as somewhat chaotic. He was clearly an archivist and this was his archive it wasn't done by a secretary he'd done all this himself so obviously he was quite keen on recording things and yeah i pretty much if you were doing a biography of spike milligan you would have all the resources you needed in that room it was quite overwhelming and he didn't differentiate so there'd be you know famous scripts next to obscure australian shows yeah i was given some stuff that he had done to send to George Martin, little demos and things like that. The the song for Jane. Yeah, that was extraordinary. There. That's right. Here and here, recorded intro and yeah, two of my comedic heroes, George Martin, the great producer, and Spike Milligan, exchanging materials. Mm. No, it's extra. It was extraordinary to be in that room. The connection between Spike Milligan and George Martin is incredibly close. They worked together in the 1950s in the Goon era. They were very good friends. And there's a very prevalent theory amongst Beatles fans that without the Goons, without Spike Milligan, the Beatles wouldn't have sounded the same. They wouldn't have been as good. But George Martin was like, yes, let's cut up all the tapes and throw them in the air. Let's have an audience cheering. Let's have chicken noises on this record because he'd done it all with Spike Milligan. It's gorgeous. It has an otherworldly quality to it. And it has that 
childish, childlike quality, which is good for a waltz written for a child, but also very typical of Spike Milligan. And that's all on this tape, George. The band Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Uh, I, I was never really into them. I, I kind of, they sort of passed me by, but obviously you being an enemy scribe around that time that they were big, did you actually meet them? Did you interview them? Did you have any encounters with them? Yeah, um, I mean, because the enemy was covering a lot of bands from Stourbridge in the Black Country in <laughs> the Midlands area, the Wanderstaff, Pop Elite itself, Crazy Head, there were probably some others. And Ned's Atomic Dustbin were kind of the second wave. I mean, they were, they were the next wave, there weren't any others. And they were young and they were obviously influenced by all these Grevo bands. And they were good, they were interesting. You know, they had two bass players, charismatic singer saw them supporting the wonder stuff and yeah. they were i really liked him i remember once being at some phoenix festival and rat one of the band was called rat for no other reason than he looked like rat scabies from the damned and having <laughs> some fun with him but my most memorable experience is that when they started off i went to a party at a friend of mine's house a pr and a photographer called jane houghton and stayed over in the spare bed and Ned's Atomic Dustbin slept on the floor in the same room. So, um, yeah, I have slept with Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And it, they were fascinating because they were young and they were a band. And like all bands, they had their own private language. They basically spent all night farting on the floor and making incomprehensible comments about it. <laughs> and in a kind of convoluted way, what struck me today thinking about this is the only real connection between them and the goons, other than the name, is one of the great things about the goons, this is a massive leap, but it is true, mm. is that the goons had a secret language which they shared with the world, which was that post-war comedy was a new generation, but this new generation had come out of the war, and there was a shared humour of conscription, of knowing what it was like to sleep in a tent in Algeria, knowing what it's like to be shot at, you know, in Sicily. And... You know, the goons were three regular soldiers and many of their audience, they were young. But they had that irreverence everyone's talked about, you know, the lack of respect yeah. for, for authority that came out of being in a war where all the classes met for the first time. And, you know, the upper classes, the officer class did not come very well, come out very well from that war. Mm. So it was a, interesting because they were radical. This is the goons, not their atomic dustbin. Mm. They were radical. They were changing things. But at the same time, their attitude was something familiar and welcomed. You know, a few years before, they'd voted in a Labour government to the surprise of Winston Churchill. And now they were voting in probably the most radical mainstream comedy of all time. Absolutely. The story is that... the what? Who's the lead singer? Our main guy is John. John. John Penny, yeah. He said that his mum used to read him from uh, read to him bedtime stories, but it was just, you know, the goon show scripts oh, fantastic. and that's where he and that's where he just was randomly flicking through the more goon show scripts book for a band name and ned's atomic dustbin jumped <laughs> out um my friend tilt said if he'd flicked a few pages on it would have been the band would have been called the spy or who is pink oboe <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, well, it tells you something about about the band about john penny that they thought that was a good name for a band because while it is, it's an odd name. 
in an era of, you know, the Wanda stuff, Crazy Head and Pop Relief itself, just to name those. It's a kind of, it's a, well, it's a comedy name. You know, you couldn't imagine U2 or Bob or Bruce Springsteen calling their bands Ned's Atomic Dustbin. It kind of suggests that they didn't have huge ambitions to be playing huge arenas, shall we say. With a, it's with not a name the kind like of that. thing that you could see a cool person wearing their T-shirt. It's one of those, I think a lot of bands, by the by, when they pick a name, they think that's a good name for a band, even though it actually isn't. It just sounds like a good name for a band. You know, the Wonder Stuff is a good name for a band. Pop Bleach itself is a good name for a band. Ned's Atomic Dustbin, you're kind of like, you know, they're going to be third support and they're going to be quite funny, which is fine. But um, yeah, I think it's kind of a bold statement. What about Toad the Wet Sprocket? What? God alone knows what's going on there. <laughs> I mean, there was a, a surprisingly good heavy metal band called Ethel the Frog. And their name was a massive, obviously a Monty Python reference, but their name was a massive hindrance, if you ask me. I know that, um, uh, who's the drummer from Pink Floyd? Nick, Nick Mason. Mason. <clears throat> One of his early bands was called Something Ridiculous, and we are talking, obviously, mid-60s. Hmm. Something like Commander Henderson and his mouth full of bees, or something oh, like I mean, that. That was the, that was that the name of the surreal. band. That is bizarre. The Neds are they still are they still a going concern? Well, I think you know? they come back from time to time. I think John Penny does his own stuff from time to time. Yeah. yeah. And looking on the internet, they released five years ago an album called Ned's Acoustic Dustbin. So this episode um, broadcast right at the beginning of January 1959. Peter's literally just signed a five-year contract with the Bolting Brothers. Right. And he's got his eye on, he's already signed up to to do I'm All Right, Jack. You know, in his head, he's just thinking, you know, I want to be a movie star. And Ned's Atomic Dustbin is, is... the 10th episode of the ninth series so there's only there's really only about another 10 12 goon shows until they call it a day wow i didn't realize that yeah so it wasn't just it's i mean all i can say is it's not a with the exception of one section which is sellers at his best it's not what i call a classic episode it's very the section that i'm referring to is when he's doing the um william mate voice talking about a dog that he says can speak Yep. And then it goes on quite a while and it says, no, dog don't speak. And it's absolutely hilarious. It's a brilliant <laughs> setup. And yeah, it's it, he's fantastic in it. It's a beautiful piece of comic acting. When's the next 
next train to London Town, Divine. Ask that hairy doggy over there. Ask the doggy, does he speak? Does he what? Does he speak? Oh, eh? Uh, here, listen, listen to this. Yeah, hello, dog. Hello, doggy. Go and tell him, dog. No, he don't speak. <laughs> That William Mate voice has, has evolved over the course of five, six years of the mm. Goon Show. It was very high pitched at the beginning, and now it's got to this. It's by this point, it's very, it's it's, it's like brandy laced, the voice almost, mm-hmm. I suppose. You know, and you know the you know the the story that Johnny Spate wanted originally wanted Sellers to play Elf Garnet. Yeah. and Sellers obviously was by that point he was you know too bound up in the movies, but. I could imagine if if Sellers had played Alf Garner, I could that this this period, this era, William Mate, this series nine, William Mate, as we hear on this episode, I could imagine him using that voice, mm. that kind of that kind of cadence, that kind of timbre. I think Mate is a little bit older because when when Sellers does use that voice in the Mario Zampi movies and the Bolting Brothers movies, <clears throat> he is generally playing someone like a night watchman. Or a fairly old bloke, but I take your point. Yeah, he he is, he just sounds a little bit more. It's slightly more youthful in this mm. in this episode. But anyway, I'm overthinking it. Um, and this show, obviously, it's very topical, um, considering that Oppenheimer's still packing them into the cinemas. Yeah, that's true. Um, I can't believe because I've never I haven't seen Oppenheimer, but it's something like eighteen hours long. Yeah, so it is eighteen hours long. <laughs> isn't it just people in rooms talking about stuff? I don't know because I haven't seen it either, but right. okay. I'm sure there's lots of pretty things in it too. Oh yes, but this idea for a Goon Show is clearly inspired by um, atomic testing, which which was going on at the time, like in places like Christmas Island, places that were as far away from Whitehall as possible, hmm. and the whole atomic dustbin idea. Though it's it's an atom-proof dustbin, as we come to learn, but the whole atomic aspect seems to be quietly dropped. Mm. And then it just becomes a dustbin to prove if a man can go over the Niagara Falls uh, and somehow beat the Russians. Yes, it um, goes into a sort of arms race jokes. The Russians well, about someone, somebody over the Volga Rapids, I believe. The media and the population at this time was kind of space mad. Um, the day that the show went out, the front page of the Daily Mail led with this banner headline saying, Leapfrog Moon Man. Russians plan space town. Um, one of Moscow's leading scientists revealed fantastic details of plans to conquer space. And there's references to space imperialism and interplanetary stations and factories to be built on the moon. Tractor factories, probably. And unusually for the Goon Show, you do actually hear some Russian characters because there's a scene set in the in the Kremlin. Then it becomes rather confusing that Blue Bottle is a, is a Russian agent, but this isn't. He's just, just again, it's a sort of silly, you know, Cub Scout thing going on. But it's like you keep going, oh, that's right, he's meant to be a communist. It doesn't quite, again, Spike Milligan doesn't seem to be able to get up to speed with that idea. He's sort of like, oh, yeah, he's a communist. And the most bizarre moment for me is when there's a joke in the punchline, is Ackle saying Stalin. What's going on here? Who are you? Stalin. <laughs> and I had to look up Stalin, who'd been dead for five years. So... Yeah, Sometimes I think reference. I think he was 
he was dead, but he was also persona non grata, I think, by that point after Khrushchev's right, so that might speech. Be yeah, the joke. It was a bizarre reference at that point. Yeah, Blue Bottle's sort of a bit of a spy, and then he sort of vaguely loses interest in it. It's not what you'd call. I mean, I don't want to be down on it because I enjoyed the episode, but it is very generic. Oh, here's Bloodnock, and there's some. Oh my goodness, he soiled himself in a comical way. Here's Moriarty <laughs> grip pipe thin with their own trying to sell something to Neddy. And it could be a lot of the episodes, it could be anything, you know, is the tag of like, oh, atomic testing. But that's kind of, and again, that's where they do a joke about it at the start, and then they move away from it. And it's definitely Spike Milligan writing on autopilot, which is basically better than most people's best efforts. But I would say it's, it's a filler episode. To be yeah, honest. that's a great, you say about autopilot, there's that gag with Eccles and Blue Bottle. Which does get a big round of applause, but it's Milligan phoning it in. Oh, the tiger! Um, yeah, Blue Bottle doesn't want to go out because there's a spider in a, and it's a tiger. Yeah, yeah. The effects don't. I've moaned a lot. The effects don't quite work on that. You can't necessarily put down to Milligan, but there isn't the sense that you get in a great goon show that you know Eccles is somehow genuinely in in threat, and the sound effects are mad enough to cover it up. It's got a great punchline. There's a big spider out there. Oh. 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 I ain't frightened of big spiders. I'll fix You know, it may presumably it's an original joke, but you're never entirely sure. But it is beaten by the dog thing, which is yes. just, which is interesting because that that joke could be in any classic, could be much fun in the marsh, it could be in it. <laughs> it's not yeah. a particularly surreal gag. Generally, I don't laugh when people are enjoying themselves in a radio show. Right. You know, it's like, I don't care if you're having fun. You're here to entertain me. But clearly, mm. Sellers is enjoying himself at this point, And it's beautifully mm. delivered. So I'm not sure how goon-like it is. But it works really well. Um, this show is, is notable in that it it was the debut of what became known as Blood Knock's Stomach sound effect. Oh, yes. It's really quite jarring as well. Yeah. Because it was it was de- uh, devised by I think it was Dick Mills from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. It's like a series of electronic bubbles and burps and belches. Major Bloodnock was a military gentleman, and he was based or had a ex-Indian colonial military career, during which he acquired a taste for very hot curries and very loose women, not necessarily in that order. And they wanted a sound sequence to announce his presence on stage. They wanted something pretty um, violent, uh, comic, and short, and explosive because of the curry effect. Uh. 
a similar sound is used in the film The Man in the White Suit for his yes. lab scenes. And it's also on a BBC sound effects record, that kind of bloop, 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 bloop. That's right. Whether it's exactly the same or not, I don't know. If it's the Radiophonic Workshop, it's probably not been nicked. But, yeah, that did become... And it doesn't, it doesn't work because it's not rude. Obviously, the BBC couldn't really have the sound of somebody's bowel shifting <laughs> on prime time. But... <laughs> It's not a funny sound effect. But you, you think, because, you know, the last Goon Show of all, and I'm no prude, don't get me wrong, I, you know, I love Derek and Clive and stuff like that, but the last Goon Show of all, there's, there's, a, there's, there's more, there's, a, there's coarseness, for want of a better word, that's crept into the Goon Show. And you just think if it had gone on, maybe if, it, you know, if Sellers had lived and there'd been a, another Goon Show revival, say in the mid 80s, you could imagine that, you know, Bloodnock would be literally filling his trousers <laughs> audibly. <laughs> yes, that does make sense. It's interesting that, you know, the first couple of series of Vic Reeves are surprisingly clean. And then I think the smell of Reeves and Mortimer, or the one after that, suddenly they get quite vulgar. They start using bad language, and it doesn't work. And similarly, with the, I was watching an old Goodies episode towards the end of their BBC period. Yeah. Yeah. And they're talking about a woman, and Bill says something, and blah, blah, blah. And then Graham Garden. Graham Garden, the most prurient character, and it says, and best of all, she's a great lay. Mm. And it's it's really quite shocking. Don't do, don't do that, goodies. Don't do that. No, it's yeah. just not their thing. It would be like, I don't know, Danger Mouse getting his willy out. It's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, with the, I mean, and again, the great thing about the goons, we pointed out, you mentioned who is Pink Oboe, the character of Hugh Jampton. Constantly through the goons, there was there were jokes for grown-ups, or mostly jokes to get past censors. And that was kind of fun. You were, again, in a secret. You were not being having it, as they say, stuck down your throat. But mm. it was funnier. Whereas I think if the goons had gone the way of the carry-on films, I don't, yeah, I like vulgarity in its right place. It works in Viz, it works in the modern Toss cartoons. It doesn't mm. work in that. I think with childlike comedy, it's like Harry Hill, you know, brilliant comedian. But I think if he started doing knob gags, it would be horrific. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we did a show on Spike's Q series oh, a yeah. while back, which which required a lot of viewing of episodes of Q. And you, And a lot of it was great. A lot of it was terrible. <laughs> and there was some stuff in between, but a lot of it was just jokes about knockers. And, yeah. You know, and, and like you say, the beginning of the show, the first act is a dig at the BBC censorship department, but you kind of, you're glad that they are there, that they exist, I suppose, <laughs> to keep Milligan from over, <laughs> overreaching, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, Q really is a hard watch because of that sort of thing. Uh, it's weird. I mean, I could invent something and say that, you know, The Goons is like as if children made a radio show, but Q6 is like as if teenagers made one. It's much too kind of, yeah, I said, here's some tits. Yeah, I'm going to black up. It's kind of not really into shock. It's kind of look how far we can go. And you're like, you sort of watch now and think these are the wrong extremes. These are not mm. boundaries that we should be testing. Mm -hmm. Don't go anywhere funny. Because this is late period goon show. There was a few lines like, 
a reference to male hormones, for example, and and eroticism, and you've got Ned painting Miss Fruit, oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> nude, um, and she says it's cold. He says I've got the candle on, but he's painting the plans of a new British dustbin, obviously. <laughs> but he, in order to do that, he needs to depose nude. But you know, stuff like that. You got Eccles up Crun's nightshirt, and everything's marked "Don't touch." Because they're antiques. That's extraordinary, yeah, for the time and also for the time slot as well. Getting back to that first act in, the, in this episode, you've got a lot of Wallace acting, Wallace Greenslade, the announcer mm. acting, <laughs> which is always troubling because he's no, he's no, he's certainly no Laurence Olivier. Oh, I don't know. I enjoy, I mean, his, his range is what it is. He's got a great voice. And it's worth it just to hear Harry Seacombe call him Wall Boy. <laughs> Listen, Wall Boy. Seacombe's a great actor. He really doesn't get the, the kudos for it. But, no, I mean, it's still funny to hear Wallace Greep, to hear something naughty like a BBC announcer being silly. And, of course, I think John Snag turns up, doesn't he, towards the end? Yeah, John Snag. Um, he was always, John Snag was always on hand if they needed, because John Snag was the one that stopped them from being cancelled. Right, a number yeah. of occasions, um, but um, he was always, you know, always happy to record a few lines for them. I've just remembered out of nowhere. I think the last time, last recording of John Snag is on the Sex Pistols album "Great Rock and Roll Swindle." At last, the film you thought you'd never have to see: the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, the staggering story of the punk group that wrung the neck of rock and roll. A kamikaze gang of cat burglars and child prostitutes, they peddled bondage whips and chains to the children of Britain. Sex Pistols. They held the record business to ransom and swindled a million pounds in the process. I just looked it up, and yes, he does appear on the soundtrack to the great rock and roll swindle. It's a track called Pistols Propaganda, which is him reciting Sex Pistols lyrics over orchestral tracks. And that's about 1979. Wow, what would he have made? He'd have loved the anarchy of the Pistols, I suppose, because he loved the anarchy of the goons. Well, he's the only person who's worked, one of the, well, probably the only person who's worked with the Sex Pistols and the goons. So that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Yeah. Sticking, I said earlier, I was talking about the references to Sputnik and you know the space race and whatnot. Um, there was a critic writing in the Listener mm. um, the, the week the show went out, and he said he said like the Foreign Office spokesman commenting on the first Sputnik, I'm afraid that the program is rather out of my sphere. The vintage goon programs earlier in the year show that the goons now have, in contrast, no feet on the ground at all. They seem to be in free fall, and their humour expanding into realms of intergalactic space. At one time, Mr. Greenslade held the guy ropes of the balloon, but he too now seems to be in orbit. The programme is still great, but there are moments when it terrifies me. <laughs> right. And, yeah, the pace of it, as I said, it's... So much seems to happen, but actually not a lot does. <laughs> you know? Oh, I think that's a good description. A lot of nothing happening with the usual eight or nine main characters and, and gibberish and sound effects and general asking about. Um, 
and then you've got this it sort of climaxes with a, with a real anti-climax because spike just couldn't be bothered as we saw with the q series later mm. on couldn't be bothered with a proper ending so i know we're getting to the end already but it sort of it sort of ends on a really sort of damp squib where they say we need to save Eccles, and then Bloodnock says, "But we didn't." There we go. The the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of like it. It is, it is a bit of a letdown, but I kind of like the brutality of it all. But yes, you can imagine just going, "I'll oh, stuff this and writing, but but we didn't," and giving it to the courier or however it was transported to the studio. Yeah. But yeah, you can. I'm an int- I'm really interested in your theory that it's all coming to an end. And they're not quite bored because they're all got pastures new. But, you know, Sellers is off. Seacombe's got loads of work lined up. The King of Light Entertainment. And Milligan just wants to stop writing the goons. Well, Milligan will always say that he was, you know, it drove him mad. And, you know, we, we know about that. But I think if push came to shove, I think Spike would have probably, because he, he'd actually written, was it five scripts? which were never actually recorded. And I think he would have probably gone on and Harry probably would have as well, but it just, it, it basically boiled down to Sellers. Sellers by 1960 was a huge British star, but, but then again, you, you know, he still had enough affection for the goons that he would come back three years later to record the soundtracks for the, for the Telegoon series, which have you have you seen the Telegoons? I can't remember if we discussed this when, when I've seen there. clips of the Telegoons. It does look like something after a nuclear war. <laughs> well, we the, the day that you and I are talking is the sixtieth anniversary of the first episode of the Telegoons. Good lord! Uh, but yeah, um, Sellers obviously you know Sellers didn't need to. By sixty three, he'd just filmed Doctor Strangelove. Wow! He was about to film the Pink Panther, and he you know he was quite well. I say he happy. He was he was available to go and sit in a studio in London somewhere in Soho and record a bunch of Telegoons episodes. That is amazing. And, you know, the the last Goon show of all... In fact, during the 60s, there was three, two, three Goon show restagings. Um, there was a Thames Television half-hour Tales of Men shirts special episode with John Cleese standing in for Wallace Greenslade. I don't know if you remember that or have seen clips of that. No, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Um, they did uh, Harry Seacombe. You know, Harry Seacombe had his special shows, his variety shows in the 60s and 70s. There there was a restaging of uh, a goon show, The Whistling Spy Enigma. I think it's 66, something like that. And Peter Sellers turned up for that. So, and the last goon show of all. And they released some records in late 70s. So Sellers never gave up on it. You know, he was always quite happy to, to come back. Oh, who knows? I mean, it must have had a... Obviously, it's quite easy to do comparatively, but sometimes people very much enjoy to say, look at me, I'm going back. I'm not proud, but... Yeah, I mean, he probably did enjoy it a great deal. You know, it was a great place to practice stuff and to be wild. And yeah. I imagine after being on film sets, probably an easier life. Who knows? There's a lot of opportunities for him in this episode to do, because apart from the usual seven, eight, nine main characters that you get in the Goon Show, there's a whole bunch of secondary or sort of fringe voices that you hear. Um, you've got Sellers doing his Australian voice that he would do around this time, and you've got that um, 
what they call the Sydney mincing voice, which he pinched off Kenneth Connor. <laughs> um, there's, there's a bit where they do sort of like a Vox, a Dick Emery type Vox pop. Mm. And here in London, we interview passers-by. Excuse me, sir. Do you believe in a white Christmas? Are you kidding? <laughs> yes. And, and uh, you, madam, do you believe in an old-fashioned Christmas for the fire? Oh, not after. There's <laughs> a very kind of racially dubious gag with Ray Allington, of course, uh, which you get those. Oh, yes, and I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of those? I mean, obviously, you know, they're not great, but... Um... Well, they're sort of in that weird hinterland of... I mean, with Milligan, it can go very badly wrong. But I think in this case, it's... You know, it, it depends on context. It's a, it's an innocuous joke. It can work in lots of different ways. Um, uh, you can tell by Seacombe's laughter afterwards. He's sort of like going, hmm, yes, well, that was a bit... Not sure if mm. we got away with that. Um, it's just a naughty joke, and yeah, it's a bit dodge, I think. But it must have been hell on that show. In that respect, what for for Ray Ellington? You mean? I think so. There was a lot. I mean, I'm sure it was the, the way it was all that across light entertainment, but he got a lot of it, and there wasn't much about Max Geldray being Canadian, if indeed he was Canadian. He was Dutch. Dutch. Well, there you go. There are very few jokes about Holland. In the show. No, there were jokes. There were jokes about his big nose, and that's about it. And his his oh, terrible no. acting. Yeah. But yeah, that sort of thing was then, and it certainly got worse with Spike later on. But it always yeah. does go that way. Um, Have you ever that- seen the Melting Pot? No, what's or that? Any. So <laughs> it was a six-part sitcom um, filmed in 1975-76 and it's Spike and John Bird um, playing two Indian gentlemen who have, okay. who, have, who have moved to London to seek their fortune or something like that. And Spike's character, although he's Indian, he's called, I think he's called Mr. Rembrandt or Mr. Van Gogh, something like oh, that. Okay. I'm not quite sure why. But it's it's him and John Bird, and they rent rooms in this terribly terribly dilapidated boarding house, with um, uh, as you'd expect a, a bosomy landlady, and um, and then they've got um, a a representative sample of of as many racial stereotypes also staying in this boarding house. So you've got you've got a black man, you've got uh, an Irishman, you've got a Jew. John Bluthall, you've got playing, you know, playing these stereotypes up to the hilt. You know what I mean? Really sort of pushing it. And there's even a goat running around at one point. But um, they they screened the pilot episode, I think, on BBC Two. And the, re- the response was, you know, even in 1976, the outraged response meant that they just shelved. They never showed the remaining episodes. I've got them and I've watched them. Most of them. There's little bits of genius here and there. Little bits. If you dig, you can you can extract a little bit of beauty of, from anything, I suppose. But most of it was just racial gags and um, boob gags. 
And I think that's a depressing thing. It's like, I don't know, it's like you get someone who's famous for making, it's like if Salvador Dali just drew naked women with large breasts. You know, Milligan's, that talent, which I know was worn down over the years. He was always being given shows and he was always like, I know, I will tackle racism in a horrifically racist way. It sort of became his go-to thing. I don't know what that was all about, but it was just he kept going there. And as I may have said last time, the only time I was ever in a room with Spike Milligan was during the recording of a TV show. And on the monitor yeah. were two actors, one dressed as a brown rabbit and one dressed as a white rabbit. And Milligan said, nobody had asked for his opinion. He said, oh, I suppose they have to have a brown one in the interests of balance. And I was like, oh, for... <laughs> Jesus. But, mate, it's two rabbits. You know, not everything is about racial it was just i don't know he he had a bee in his bonnet about it clearly that never really ended like a, like a few people thought he was entitled to do those characters because he was born in india and knew the people although as i think was pointed out in the documentary the people he knew were servants in his family house mm-hmm. but yeah right. there's a there's a reference in this show Getting back to Ned's Atomic Dustbin, um, Sellers ref- uh, very often around this time, they'd, well, even throughout the Goon Show, they would, there'd be references to their real selves. Mm. So Seekin refers to um, Peter Sellers, playboy of Old Finchley Tube Station and friend of West End Management. And that gets, <laughs> gets a really warm round of applause. Um, because at this time, Sellers was, was right at the fag end of his um, uh, time Treading the boards, doing the play Brouhaha. It, it closed the following month. Um, and uh, Sellers had been all up for it in the beginning, and then he just hated the repetitiveness of it because it's, it's a play. You have to you know, follow the script, do the same lines every night. And he hated that. So he would start to improvise, as Milligan would later do in the 60s with Son of Oblomov. Um, but the problem was it, was it was causing the rest of the cast no end of frustration. You had people like... Uh, Lionel, let's say Lionel Blair, Lionel Jeffries, and I think Leo McKern, you know, who were consummate professionals, and and Sellers was every night throwing them because he wasn't following the script. Um, he got pissed one one day and turned up. He'd been to Alec Guinness's knighthood party or something, mm. and turned up that evening to do the play drunk and fell off the stage into That's the. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and actually said to the audience when he sort of got back up onto the stage he said I'm I, I think he said I'm drunk do you want me to carry on and they all shouted yes and he just <laughs> just carried on in that state anyway it closed um, and and uh, soon after and um, he, he never he was never on the stage again sure. it's always fascinating with Sellers that he did make that jump from impersonating RAF officers and doing funny voices on the radio but there was something in him which made him a movie star, even though he was, I mean, do you know about do you, Leslie Hallowell's, the film guide guy's deep hatred of Peter Sellers? No. I don't know the reasons for it, but Hallowell was like, you know, he had the Hallowell's movie guide, which was really mm. influential in the days before the internet. Yeah. But he was a very opinionated man. He didn't like much made after 1950, but he had a thing about Sellers. And, he basically would be writing, and all he would he'd say is that you know all he does is loads of different funny voices, and 
while that's not quite fair, it, it is bizarre that Sutter's career as a massively famous film star was basically doing funny voice, playing two or three roles in a movie. It was mm. always kind of stunt casting. He'd often play different three characters in a movie, even in Doctor Strange Love. And it was fascinating for people to watch, but there was no point to it, if we're honest. It's like, why not get three actors in? It would be less weird. It works brilliantly in Doctor Strangelove because it's so disconcerting. You keep going, they're all sellers. Yeah, his his mother famously turned up to yeah. Pinewood and didn't recognise him when he was dressed as the president, I think. Well, no, the, the version that I read was that he wouldn't talk to her in his Peter Sellers persona. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he had to talk to the president. That's it. Yeah. And actually, she just went home. But yeah, he was an impersonator rather than an actor. You know, even his being there, his greatest moment, he's doing Stan Laurel. It's fantastic. Mm. And yet a lot of his, the later Clouseau films, a lot of it was slapstick. A lot of it was pratful. Oh, yeah, he was like that. He had the chance to say, my nose, in a movie. I think that's probably his secret catchphrase. He says, my nose in The Naked Truth. And he probably says it in a lot of Clouseaus uh, as well. Well, The Naked Truth, I know you're very fond of that. Um Although he's playing one character, technically he's playing a lot of characters, isn't he? Because he's got that character playing yeah, characters. I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if it's the first multi-sellers movie because they do it brilliantly. You know, the way they introduce him as a comedian who is also completely phony. <laughs> you know, he's this jolly Scotsman, but he's actually a vile human being. Don't bite your nails. Ah, oh, shut up. Mind your manners. Well, you have got yourself into a proper pickle, haven't you, Mr. M? You've been listening at the door again. Well, I'm only trying to be helpful, you know. Go on, say it. Say it. I'm fired again, aren't you? Yes. It strikes me you can both start looking for another appointment. It's the end of we Sonny McGregor, you know. Don't bite your nails. Did you listen... Because I sent you the, the whole original recording of Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Did you listen right to the end, which has got, like, the BBC duty announcer? Mm, yes. The Goon Show, which was recorded, was produced by John Bravo. Harry Seacombe is now appearing in Larger's Life at the Opera House Manchester and Peter Sellers in Bruhaha at the Aldwych Theatre, London. But Spike had written that for the duty announcer and the duty announcer didn't bother reading the last bit that Spike had written, which was Spike Milligan is appearing on The Goon Show. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classically mildly bitter Spike Milligan moment there. <laughs> I think he always felt that everybody else did well out of the Goon Show, apart from him. Also because he was the writer as well, doing everything. With the Goons, it is that kind of, you know, everyone's off to have a party. I'm still sat here working at four o'clock in the morning. Mm. But yes, to a certain extent, it is easier to be an actor or a singer like Harry Seacombe. But they worked flipping hard as well. And he was not sure to work. You know, he did pretty well. There's a lot of comics who did not work until their dotage, but Spike did. Yeah. Yeah, his last, one of his last appearances on television was um, in an S Club 7 <laughs> TV special. Good Lord. But it was, it was shortly before he died. And there was a, there was a, a year 2000 S Club 7, or was it Steps? I always get those two mixed up. Steps or S Club 7, a summer special TV show, hour long, extravaganza and they had 
them you know performing songs and whatnot and then they'd have these quote humorous sketches in mm. between the songs and you know the, the members of s club seven or, or steps you know um they, they weren't as good actors as wallace green so let's put it that way but they they did these sketches and one of them was set in a gym and you had to, <laughs> for no reason at all we had spike very elderly very frail spike milligan and they called him Spine instead of Spike. And then he sort of waved his fist at them and said, it's Spike, it's Spike, and then ran out the door. <laughs> it was terrible. Let's track that down. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's a bit, there's quite a bit in this where Sellers plays the Prime Minister in the in this episode. And it's obviously, I, I, I'm guessing it's meant to be Macmillan, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not an impression of Macmillan. But, is it an impression of Macmillan? I'm not sure. I think Macmillan had quite a sort of patrician. Well, we're a few years away from the establishment when, don't forget, it was considered quite shocking for Peter Cook to do an impression of Harold Harold Macmillan, although his impression was a bit more negative. So it's hard to say at this distance, but they did do Churchill from time to time. Yeah, but he got slapped over the wrist for doing Churchill. Um, Well, that's probably why they kind of elided it a bit. With yeah. not quite Macmillan voice. Well, here's a CBE on account. Now, would you like to? Uh, <laughs> would you like to try for the Night Star and Gata? Well, it's okay with you, sir. It's all right with me. Good. We'll come back tomorrow with Huey Green. Until then, a sailor's farewell. Whoop! There's also a reference to Lord Hailsham, and I always contend that. Lord Hailsham was a was a default or like a reliable comedy comedy name, beloved of comedians in the sixties and seventies, like the two Ronnies and, and Python. Does that name strike? It was always t- there was always references to Lord Hailsham in sixties and seventies comedy yes. show, shows. Well, it was a good name, but let me just check something. Also, Quentin Hogg. Well, he was Quentin Hogg. Mm, that's and right. He was a fat man, so he was an easy cipher for. He's as fat as Lord Hailsham, or you know, like, is that a tent? No, it's Lord Hailsham's new jacket. That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think he was a fairly colourful character. He may have been the man about whom somebody, a woman, said that making love to Lord Hailsham was like having. Well, it was Lord Goodman having a wardrobe fall on you with the key still in the lock. No, that was um. Nicholas Soames, wasn't it? That's Nicholas Soames. It may have been before that. But yeah, no, Lord Hailsham was a big bloke called Quentin Hall. That's all I can really know. But yeah, there were names in the goon shows that, like Lady Docker, who I had to look up. Yeah. And she was basically a very extravagant woman who went through her husband, Lord Docker's fortune at great speed. And she was the you know, kind of person who had pink Rolls Royces and so forth. But Lord Hailsham, literally a bit more conservative. Yeah, because there's there's a bit where, for reasons, Neddy's got a <laughs> um, three feet of wooden leg stuck to his head with a hat on the top, and somebody somebody says, "Oh, that's this Lord Elsham." Doesn't mean anything, but you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's surreal in a proper way. It's always disappointing for me when I watch things that are meant to be surreal and discover that the joke was in fact a topical gag, which no oh, longer yes. makes any sense. I prefer it when they're meaningless. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
there's the introduction of Moriarty. I always enjoy Grit Pipe and Moriarty at this in this period of the Goon Show when they're really on their uppers. They're really sort of poverty-stricken uh, wretches. Um, Moriarty's introduced as Count Jim Wakey Wakey Moriarty, which I'm guessing is a reference to Billy Cotton. That's right. <laughs> but you're too yeah. young to remember Billy Cotton, I presume. No, but I'm aware of the slogan. And Grip Pipe's line, because they're, they're all sharing Henry Crun's nightshirt, and Grip Pipe's line, there's people in this nightshirt trying to sleep, is very similar to his line, from a couple of shows earlier where he says, keep quiet. Do you want us both out of the suit? <laughs> it's, they yeah, are, I love. If, I mean, they are the strangest couple. They're probably in a sexual relationship, but I love, I love the, it's the classic thing about Sellers acting in Milligan's that, you know, Sellers voice is a suave Valentine dial style. Well, yeah. daddy. And grip and Moriarty is just a noise. He hardly ever says a coherent sentence. It's a complete Milligan nonsense voice. And it's just a great contrast. He's a scribble. You know, Grit Pipe Thin is a, is a photograph and Moriarty is a scribble. Ah, greetings, my loyal subjects. And all... <laughs> Stop that revolting scratching, will you, Count? If you go back to you know, five years before this, uh, Moriarty was suave in his own way. It was a completely different voice. It was Milligan doing a rather sophisticated continental type voice, if you like, for want of a better word. Sacre bleu. You said he had money. Steady, dear Moriarty. Look what he's written his IOU on. Sapristi Bompetto. A treasure map. Yes. This is the map of Andre Chalot's mine. So... Uh, half for you, half for me. Now we can't twist each other, eh, partner? <laughs> but wait, as soon as we reach America, we must make for the lost gold mine, hmm? and then... <laughs> gold! 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then gradually, as the show went on, very gradually... He just kind of gave up and <laughs> just started doing, like you say, this burble. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything, it's like everything in The Goon Show gradually would fall to bits or decay or become drab, you know. There's a lot of colour, but there's no, there's not a lot of beauty in The Goon mm-hmm. Show, I would say. Well, all good things come to an end, they say. Yeah. So is is there anything else you wanted to say about this particular show or the goons in particular? I think I've pretty much said it. I think it, I mean, the only thing I will say is the sort of elasticity of the goons' reputation that you hear them, you love them. You go through sort of embarrassing, like, I like the goon show. It's this. And then you meet people who go, oh, God, the goons, of course, completely unlistable nowadays. And you think, I suppose that's a bit true. But then you go back to an average show like Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And there's stuff in it that you just go, oh, my God, nobody could do this. You know, there's always a there's always a diamond in the murk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's always worth persevering. There's always at least one great sequence, like in this one, the doggy, the the, the, like the, the doggy, which the is non-talking fantastic. doggy. <laughs> um. So. David, what are you what are you working on at the moment? What's what's happening um, in the world? I'm just been 
listening to edits of a radio series I wrote called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane Austen with French and Saunders, which is on in December this year. Okay. And that is keeping me happy, radio. Uh, I think when you were on last time, you were, was was that in sort of development maybe if Probably. There was yeah. a long gap between the two series and a long gap before the first series went out. So, yeah, I wouldn't uh-huh. be surprised. And um, are you writing any more books? You have you had Ricky's I'm Hand. I'm trying to write a novel at the moment, yeah. helping other people with their, excuse me, film scripts, just doing bits here and there. Okay. It's a quiet yet busy time. All right, David. Well, listen, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. And, Thank you, Tyler. It's been great. And, uh, and uh, all the best. We'll talk again. Looking forward to it. Cheers, then. Have a good one. Thanks again to David. Uh, next week, something different. See you then. Bye.